We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. It's probably too pat to say that Matilda Bernstein Sycamore deploys words and ideas the way her artist grandmother wielded paint, foil, and paper to create. Create what? Something hard to get a handle on, something abstract, but expressive, something that seems to contain its own light. Yeah, no doubt it's too convenient to compare the way Matilda Bernstein Sycamore writes with the way her grandmother, Gladys Goldstein, made art. But it is one way to find an entry into the extraordinary book Sycamore has written. Mostly memoir, but layered like a collage with biography, art criticism, and social history, Baltimore's history. The book is called Touching the Art. Sycamore has previously written three novels and three nonfiction books, as well as editing six nonfiction anthologies. The latest is Between Certain Death and a Possible Future, Queer Writing on Growing Up with the AIDS Crisis. Matilda Sycamore joins us on Zoom. Welcome to On the Record. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be in conversation. Your grandmother, Gladys Goldstein, was enormously important to you as you were growing up. How? Well, as a child, um, going up into her studio was the one time when I could dream. I could imagine a creative life because I was living with, with her. And as a child, she kind of nourished everything that made me different. So my sensitivity, my creativity, my empathy, my softness, my femininity, she allowed me to express it all um, and sort of gave me the notion that living a creative life um, meant seeing art all the time, in the everyday. Art was everything. Art was everything. There are so many precise descriptions of individual works by Gladys Goldstein. Can, can you broaden it out to give listeners an idea of what you think of when you think of her art? How should we think of her art? Yeah, I mean, she was an abstract artist. And to her, that meant using everyday materials and to conjure what she saw as a realistic um, impression of the world. And so as a child, you know, that was a world I sort of grew up in, you know, so seeing her making some of these works. So for example, she made candy wrapper collages that are made entirely of candy wrappers. Um, she made handmade paperwork that were these densely layered creations that she would embed other materials into. So she would take like a seashell wind chime and put it inside um, the paperwork. Um, or wrapping paper, or a beaded necklace that had broken. She would put the beads into the paperwork. And then she made paintings that her primary goal was to get the light to come through the paint. Um, and she started, you know, as a figurative painter way before I was born. But by the time um, I came into the picture, all of her work was abstract. And, you know, she was painting all the time, you know, up until her death. Um, it was what she did with her life, and she was doing it all the time. Where can people see her work now? Uh, well, there is a permanent collection of her work at the University of Maryland Global Campus. Um, that's in College Park. That's adjacent exactly, to the yeah. College Park campus. Yeah, and um, there are some pieces. 
They're not on display, actually, but they do have some pieces at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And I think a lot of private collections in Baltimore. So um, in Baltimore, I'm sure there are places where people have seen her work and don't even know it, I'm guessing. How was she considered in the art world of her day? She was born in 1917. Um, She lived in Baltimore from 1919 until her death in 2010. And she knew she was an artist when she was very young, you know, and she, she was taking classes at the Maryland Institute starting when she was age 12. But she didn't think of herself as an artist. I, I guess I should I said she knew she was an artist, but she didn't think of herself as an artist because I think of the misogyny of those times. So even though she was always excelling, no one ever said she was an artist until 19, early 1950s when she went to study actually the teaching of art um, at Penn State. And that uh, professor, Hobson Pittman, he said, oh, you don't belong here because you're a real artist. And no one had ever said that to her before. And that's also when she's when she embraced abstraction because um, she was making a living as a portrait painter, but she hated it uh, because she didn't believe in that kind of work. <laughs> um, it's funny because she'll say, I see myself as a realistic painter because I'm painting the relationship of people with the world. And she sees, you know, figurative work as not being realistic. Cause she's like, well, you can't put a person on a flat surface. <laughs> so I think she was always experimenting. Um, she saw herself as a contemporary artist, you know, her whole life. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore about her sprawling new memoir, Touching the Art. In it, she meditates on connections between herself and her grandmother, a well-known abstract expressionist artist who lived in Baltimore. That sense of enveloping support that you got from Gladys changed when you were 20. Tell us about the memory that you recovered. Yeah, so I remembered um, that I was sexually abused by my father. And um, that my father is her only child. Um, And that sort of changed everything for me. I already knew that I um, hated him in a certain sense and that I wanted to overcome his rage. That was my, you know, what I had remembered from childhood, his rage and how he controlled everyone in the household with that. And also for his worldview, you know, this is the um, upper middle class Jewish assimilated family where sort of elitist attainment and educational attainment that, that's what meant everything. And beneath that, you could kind of camouflage the violence. But I didn't remember that I had, you know, in order to survive, I had to keep those memories internalized. Um, and so it wasn't until I got away and I was living in San Francisco in a queer world that kind of embraced um, everything that meant something to me that I remembered that I had been sexually abused by him And that suddenly I understood everything, right? And so I had to like rearrange my whole way of thinking. And also my memories changed because so much had been blocked out, right? And so I was like, how do I get back what had been taken from me by that abuse? And in some ways, I think that is something that continues throughout my life. And how did your family react to your saying that your father had abused you? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, they reacted by protecting him. Um, And so in some ways, everyone's responses were more honest in the immediate sense. Because when I confronted him, he was a psychiatrist. 
Um, and so he had every way of dealing with um, the abuse and coming to terms with his own behavior. And so when I confronted him um, in 1995, I said that I would never speak to him again unless he could acknowledge that he had sexually abused me. And I also gave that same letter um, to everyone in my immediate family. So my four grandparents, my mother, my sister, and you know, my mother and my grandparents in particular, they, um, I mean, Gladys, interestingly, her first response was, if this is true, how can I go on living? And I said, well, it is true. And I do want you to go on living. Um, but after that, it was all about, it was as if I was abusing him. That was how, and that they needed to protect him. And what they were protecting was this illusion of upward mobility, this illusion of, because he was like, you know, the sort of prodigal son um, who was bringing renown to the family. And even Gladys, um, because I think of her own sort of internalized misogyny, you know, to her, he was her prized possession, right? And he was the one that was going to attain for everyone. And so they needed or decided to preserve that um, over uh, the truth or over um, any kind of um, honesty. As you mentioned, you already at this point had identified as gender queer. How did Gladys react to that? Yeah, that was really interesting because as a child, she really nourished everything that made me queer, everything. And she really saw beauty in that. You know, I mean, I remember when I was um, in high school and I started uh, wearing pendants around my neck, you know, and and she got very excited and would give me these pendants as a gift, you know, or these, these like sort of art pins. Um, but when my work sort of became unapologetically queer, sort of sexual and politically saturated, suddenly everything to her became vulgar. That was the word she used. And she would say, why are you wasting your talent? And this is something she repeated over and over and over over the years. And you know, she would say things like, your best writing was when you were in high school. <laughs> and of course, that was because it was still, you know, it was like I was imitating a poem by, you know, T.S. Eliot or something. And so it's firmly in the, the grasp of modernism. And I think she saw art in a certain sense. She wanted a kind of purity. And purity meant that your own personal experience could be in it, but it couldn't be like articulated in its full complexity, I guess. And, and the other part that's so fascinating to me is, you know, her best friend was gay. He was a gay artist, Keith Martin, who was instrumental to her career. The first person to tell her she was an artist was Hobson Pittman, who was also gay. And this is in the 1950s, you know, but I'm, I'm looking at these photos of her and my father and my grandfather. They're on a trip to Colorado, 1956. And, and I'm like, oh, well, here's another man. That's Keith Martin. And then there's another man. It's Keith Martin's lover. They're on a family trip in 1956. Like, you know, the height of this sort of, you know, cult of domesticity, straight homophobic normativity. But they, but they, they, were, 
they were part of her family. But still, with me, um, yeah, she refused. And, and I think the sort of in some ways, the genesis of this book is, you know, after she died, when I went to her house in Mount Washington and I was spending time with her work and with this space that had meant so much to me, and I realized how much it would have meant to me if she had engaged with my work as an artist, but she refused to because to her, it was vulgar. And, and, and that what was vulgar was my queerness itself. We need to take a short break in our conversation with Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore about her new book, Touching the Art. When we're back, navigating whiteness, Jewishness, blackness, and queerness in Baltimore. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. In her new memoir, biography, art critique, Touching the Art, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore gropes to understand how her grandmother, the esteemed abstract impressionist artist Gladys Goldstein, navigated the various cultures she lived in or near. A big part of what we experience in the book, Matilda, is you piecing together small facts which then trigger more questions. Would you read to us from page 251. When someone says, history repeats itself, this phrase has already been repeated so many times that it's hard not to nod your head in agreement. But does the repetition of this phrase make the persistence of structural injustice sound inevitable, neutral, or coincidental? Does this conceal the bias of the discipline of history? everything left out that continues to remain invisible. I'm sitting here looking at the map of Baltimore. I'm trying to find the intersection where Freddie Gray was arrested on April 12, 2015, leading to his death in police custody. How do I describe the feeling when I realize that Mount Street, where he was apprehended, is just two blocks east of McKean Avenue, where Gladys grew up? How do I describe the feeling when I realize that Freddie Gray was arrested just five blocks from the house where Gladys grew up? History is everything we remember and everything we forget. When I asked Gladys if she ever went back to the neighborhood where she grew up, she said, you can't. The path of white flight is the path of complicity. Thank you. Uh, tease that out for us. The path of white flight is the path of complicity. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, when I asked Gladys if she ever went back to the neighborhood where she grew up, um, she told me, you can't. And when I said, what do you mean? It doesn't exist anymore. She just said, you can't. 
And I knew what that meant because I know how structural racism works and how familial white supremacy plays out. I knew what she meant. I knew she meant that the neighborhood where she grew up had become a black neighborhood. And because it was a black neighborhood, she had never gone back. And that is how structural racism works in Baltimore. And that's how it works in many places. <laughs> and, and so I never knew where that was because she never told me. And it wasn't until I moved to Baltimore in 2018 to you know, sort of immerse myself in working on touching the arts um, that I was able to find where she grew up. And part of that was because I was able to trace her, her best friend from childhood, um, who at that time was 101 and was completely cogent. And she told me the street where she grew up. And I think that is another thread in the book is that, you know, here's this woman who embraced abstraction um, at a time when, you know, like when she first went to the Maryland Institute, you know, they were obsessed. She left, she left the Maryland Institute because she thought it was too conservative. They were not teaching Picasso. You know, this is in the thirties. And she's like, well, I'm not interested in that. So she was brave in certain ways. She was ahead of her time in many ways. And the, her way of thinking about art, you know, infused everything about her life. But at the same time, she was still, you know, entrenched in, you know, a kind of racism that that was part, I think, of Jewish assimilation. And that's another thing I'm sort of tracing in the book, because, you know, Jews were prevented from owning property um, in most of Baltimore. And so the her path, like many Jews, you know, who were upwardly mobile, was you know north to northwest baltimore right and so and they saw themselves as and still see themselves as you know sort of liberal uh baltimore but there is this this entrenched fear uh this racist fear um that of course is it plays out in so many ways in baltimore and in this book in particular i'm looking at both the kind of familial and the structural ways that that plays out and and in that passage I just read, when I realized that Freddie Gray, you know, was murdered just a few blocks from where Gladys grew up, that is the path of white flight. White, white flight leads to, you know, disinvestment, to hyper-policing, to decades and decades of basically removing all the resources in a neighborhood, right? And so, and you can see that and feel that in that neighborhood today. That's Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. One of her books is The Freezer Door, one of Oprah Magazine's best LGBTQ books of 2020. We're talking today about her latest book, Touching the Art. In it, she reflects on her connection with her grandmother, a well-known abstract expressionist artist who lived in Baltimore. Gladys Goldstein was a contemporary of the better-known Baltimore-based artist Grace Hardigan. You write that they were not friends, and then you muse for pages about what such a friendship would have been like. Why? You know, I became fascinated by Grace Hardigan because because every time I asked um, someone who was a student um, of Gladys's if she ever mentioned other artists, they didn't really have any memories, but there was always one memory about Grace Hardigan. And what Gladys said was always completely scathing. 
And so I thought, well, there's a relationship there, right? In that. And, you know, and I realized, you know, Gladys was one of the first people hired to teach abstract art at MICA. And um, that was in 1960. And I was like, well, Grace Hartigan is the person most famous for teaching at uh, MICA. And so I looked up, when did she start? Oh, 1965. She was hired in 1964. When did Gladys leave? 1964. And so Grace Hartigan, of course, you know, she is documented. She's been canonized. You know, she made her career in New York. Um, her best friend was Frank O'Hara, a gay poet who was instrumental to her career. And so at first I saw her as a kind of, kind of how I thought of Gladys, right? Not her art, but her life. You know, she's someone who grew up middle class and left that life to pursue a bohemian world in New York. And but then I realized, you know, she also has her own contradiction. And one of the things I want to think about is, well, what would it have been like for the two of them to be friends? Because they both, one thing they have entirely in common, and which is true almost across the board of women artists in their generation, is that they only saw the men as the real artists. And they could only talk about men. You know, they only talked about male artists. And so I thought, well, what would it have been like if they actually had been friends, right? And as Grace moved away from abstraction and embraced figurative work, and Gladys, you know, continued to embrace abstraction, what if they were both teaching at MICA and they could meet each other in the hallway? So this kind of, to, to imagine the history that we're not told. And I'm not saying they were friends. I know they weren't. <laughs> but, but I guess, I start to crave a kind of world where the men who dominated their lives didn't exist at all. And so maybe in some ways, it's part of that gesture. What if they had a camaraderie, right? What if they could have talked about the misogyny they were experiencing? But Grace, you know, she threw away her relationship with Frank O'Hara and her um, dealer um, in order to find the husband that she saw as her you know, perfect match, who was a Hopkins professor, whereas Gladys kept her, you know, gay friends, you know, in her life. So I was like, maybe they could have learned from one another. So I guess it's a kind of gesture, a kind of um, rescuing them from history in a way. Of course, the book is all about the art. And I hardly know what to ask you. At one point, you write, art is never just art. It's a history of feeling, a gap between sensations, a safety valve, an escape hatch, a sudden shift in the body, a clipboard full of flowers, a welcome mat flipped over and back, over and back, welcome, close quote. So much in there. Help me understand what you're saying. Well, I think that when I started the book, I wanted to write about abstract art by writing abstractly. And so what I started to do was to literally touch the art, to touch Gladys's art, to feel what would come through. So in a way, I'm doing the thing that is the most concrete. What could be more concrete than touch, than feeling, than sensation, in order to write about something that is abstract? And I think there always are so many layers. I think that is the possibility of abstraction, right? That it can create a prism through which the world changes through which our sensation and our experience of every day becomes both every day and transcendent at the same time. 
But at the same time, I didn't want to write about art in a vacuum, right? Because art is always conditioned by the lives and the experiences. And, um, you know, like Gladys wanted her art to exist outside of everything. Now, that was a myth. And it was a myth in a sense that saved me as a child because she said that, you know, your art could exist. And I needed to get away, right? I needed to get out of the violence of the household I grew up in, right? I needed a way to escape and art was that way. And in some ways that's why I embraced art. But at the same time, that's actually not what art is. And so in the book, I also want to talk about you know, Jewish assimilation and white flight and structural racism and, you know, surviving sexual abuse. And all of it is intertwined. And I think that, too, is part of the art. It is all intertwined. It's a fascinating book. Thanks for talking to us about it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore's new book of memoir, biography, art critique, and Baltimore social history is titled Touching the Art. Next Monday, November 13th at 6 p.m. at the Ivy Bookshop on Falls Road, Sycamore will discuss Touching the Art with Baltimore writer and Towson University associate professor Jeannie Venasco. Links to more information about that event and about Sycamore and her work at the On the Record page at wypr.org. If you missed parts of today's conversation, don't fret. You can listen to On the Record wherever podcasts are found. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. <laughs>